here at Living Water, and I am grateful and honored for the opportunity to be able to uh, share God's word with you. Um, this is my third time being up here, and, and normally, uh, for whatever reasons, well, Saturdays are always the, the, the day when the butterflies seem to be the, the largest. And I remember I woke up this morning, and I was thinking, okay, today's the day, and uh, I had a bright idea. I said, you know what, since uh, I get so nervous on Saturdays, I'm going to go on YouTube, I'm going to click on a video, and I'm going to find out, I'm going to click on uh, tips for public speaking. And so I typed that up in my computer. I clicked on the very first video. It was at the very top. It had the most views. So I said, this has to be the, this has to be the best one. And so I click on the video, and the first thing the guy says is he says, uh, whenever you're doing public speaking, you have 10 seconds to captivate the audience. He says, and if you don't do something within 10 seconds, you're, you're done. You're going to lose everybody. And so what he did was he showed a video of a person, and it was this guy giving this public speech in front of all these corporate executives, and he pulls out a cigarette and a lighter, and he's getting ready to light it before he speaks, and everybody's like, no, no, don't do it, don't do it. And so the guy says, you have to have a prop, and if you don't have a prop, um, it's just not going to work for you. And so I clicked out on that video, and I said, well, uh, that may captivate the audience, but it'll definitely get me thrown out of church. <laughs> so I'm just going to rely upon God, and I, I'm grateful that his uh, strength is made perfect in, in, in our weakness. Um, so normally, uh, those of you that have been here for any amount of time, you know that the series and the messages are planned out months and months in advance. And so about five or six months ago, uh, I got an email from Pastor Mike, and he asked me if I would be willing to speak this, this weekend. And so normally what happens is he says, hey, James, you know, this is the series that we're going to be discussing. Um, this is the passage that I want you to talk about. He'll give me a brief overview about what the passage is uh, talking about. And then he says, hey, if you need any resources, if you have any questions, if there's any way that I can help you, uh, let me know. But he said this time we, there, there's a gap in between the series. And so if you want to, you can share something that's on your heart, something that's near and dear to you. And when I got the email, I was, like, I was excited at that. I was like, okay, okay, this is, this is cool. This is, this is interesting. It's an honor. And so once I got the email, I moseyed on to my study room, and I looked at some notes and some things that I had studied in the past, and I was like, you know, maybe I can blow the dust off of this and, and present it, but I didn't have peace about it. Then I found something else, and I said, well, maybe I can uh, spice this one up, put some paprika and some Old Bay on it, and voila. But I didn't have a peace about it. And the more I thought about what I was going to speak about, the more increasingly frustrated I became. And I was finally at the point where I was about to email Pastor Mike and just say, hey, Pastor Mike, I, I can't think of anything to speak about. Can you give me some suggestions? Can you give me something that I could possibly share? But right before I sent that email, uh, I felt led to be transparent. I felt like I needed to share what I had been dealing with uh, several months ago and, and by God's grace, what I'm coming out of now. And so those of you that have a Bible or have a uh, smartphone, I would ask you to turn to Hebrews chapter 2. This is a topic that has been, uh, it was near and dear to my heart 
Well, not near and dear in a good way, but it's something I have been wrestling with and that I'm overcoming by God's grace. So those of you that have Hebrews chapter 2, we're going to read the first four verses. And those of you that are able to stand, I would humbly ask if you would stand for the reading of God's word. Hebrews chapter 2 verses 1 through 4 says, Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Brothers and sisters, this is the reading of God's word. Uh, Please join me in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, I, I thank you. I thank you for your grace, Lord God. I thank you for this opportunity to stand before your people and to be able to share what you have uh, revealed to me, Lord God. And Lord, I, I, I just thank you, Lord God, for your mercy, Lord God. And, and that even when I drift, Lord God, you never let me go, Lord God. I thank you that I'm sealed, Lord God. And I thank you, Father, that no one or nothing can pluck me from your hand, Lord God. And Lord, I just pray that you would bless everyone under the sound of my voice, Lord God. I pray that you would uh, mend our hearts together, Lord God, and I pray that you would just have your way. I ask that you would uh, decrease me and that you would increase, Lord God, so that you would be glorified. I pray that you would bless this time that we have together, and I pray that your will would be done and that ultimately you would be glorified. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, So... For about 10 years, I've had the privilege of serving in the prison ministry. It's uh, probably my favorite thing to do. Uh, For the last two years, I've been able to go to Camp Hill along with uh, Mrs. Virginia Smith and some others. But prior to that, before I was at Camp Hill, I I served at York County Prison for a number of years. And I had an excellent relationship with the old chaplain. His name was Chaplain Bupp. And because our relationship was so good, I enjoyed some privileges that I didn't know were privileges until he retired. Uh, One of those privileges was that not only was I able to speak to a group of men at once, but he would allow me access to the attorney-client rooms. And so what I would do is I would go in and he would um, schedule someone that he wanted me to specifically talk to. And we would just meet in the attorney client rooms and we would have counseling sessions. We'd have Bible studies. It'd be times of prayer. And I really miss and enjoy those times. And so there was one gentleman in particular that the chaplain wanted to set me up with. And so he sent me an email in advance and he said, hey, James, uh, there's this guy that I want you to talk to. Um, but he's not going to be here long. Typically, when he set me up with someone, we'd have a couple of months, maybe even a year. But he said, this guy, we're just holding him for a short period of time, and eventually they're going to transport him upstate. So get here as soon as you can, because I don't know how long he's going to be here. So I got to the prison um, as soon as I was able to. I met with the individual, and because I knew that I didn't have a long 
a period of time to talk to him that I would probably never see him again. I was really intentional in sharing the gospel with him. That was my main focus. Normally, the first time that I would meet an inmate, you know, I would introduce myself. I'd share my testimony. Um, they talk a little bit about themselves. We wouldn't even open the Bible. We would just get to know one another. And so, but with this time, it was a little different. So I started at the book of Genesis and talked about the attributes of God and um, I explained chapters one through three to the best of my ability. And as I was going over the account of Adam and Eve, he was respectful, but I could tell that nothing was registering. Um, it was almost going in one ear and out the other. It was, it was almost like, you know, yeah, yeah, I've heard that before. Tell me something that I don't know. And so finally, um, we got to chapter three around the seventh or the eighth verse when God calls out to Adam and I made the point, I said, notice that God pursued the sinner. Even though Adam had rebelled against God and eaten from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, God still pursued the sinner. And immediately, once I made that point, it was like he had been struck with a, with a bolt of hope. And he perked up and he immediately started to tell me a little bit about his situation. And I found out that not only was he familiar with the story, but he was a believer and I found out not only was he a believer, but he had attended a church that I was very uh, familiar with. And not only did he attend this church, but he had served as youth pastor there. He had been the youth pastor at this particular church for several years. And as soon as he shared that with me, instantly the roles were reversed. And I found all of a sudden he was teaching me instead of me teaching him. I had questions. I wanted to know, how do you go from faithfully serving the Lord Jesus Christ to being transported upstate? And he began to share with me that he had come across some financial difficulties, and he prayed, and he believed that things would get better, but things didn't work out quite the way he had anticipated. And after months and months of prayer that seemingly went unanswered, he eventually took matters into his own hands. And did some things that were illegal. And as a result, he was arrested and sent upstate. And as he began to share his, his story with me, he said something that I don't think I'll ever forget. He says, you know, I spent all this time encouraging others. I spent all this time uh, helping my pastor and pouring into the lives of the members and encouraging the children. But he said, who ministers to the minister. Who ministers to the minister? Now, you may be in a season in your life where you're passionately pursuing the things of God. You may be wildly in love with Jesus. You may be quick to repent, and you're, you're growing from faith to faith. And if that's you, I say amen. Praise God. To God be the glory. But I, I believe that there are some, under the sound of my voice, who you may not verbally say who ministers to the minister, but you may be in a season of depression. You may be in a season of, of doubt. I'm speaking to the people that, that you're working and, and you're doing all that you know to do, but your schedule's gotten a little bit out of control and maybe you're struggling with time management and you have so many things pulling at you from so many different directions that you now find that you're focusing on good things and those good things have pulled you away from the great thing. And that's developing and growing in your relationship with Jesus. 
I'm speaking to the single moms and to the stay-at-home mothers, those who have sacrificed their life to make sure that their home is as strong as it could possibly be. And you sacrificially uh, supported your husband and you're pouring into your children, affirming them and loving them. But yet and still on the inside, you have dreams and you have desires and you may be asking, who's ministering to me? What about me? I'm speaking to those who have the privilege to serve in church. And you're working a ton of hours. And you feel the burden and the weight of being all things to all people. And you're afraid to make a mistake because the grace that you extend to others may not be uh, extended to you. You may have a ministry. You may have something that God has placed on your heart. And it may not be at the magnitude that you would have hoped. And you may be wondering, well, what about me, God? I'm speaking to those that are believing for a healing for themselves or for a loved one. Maybe you're believing for a better a job or a career change. Um, I'm speaking to those that have strained relationships, and you, you're aware that God is there. You know that he's sovereign, but you ask yourself, does he care? Does he see what I'm going through? Does he really love me? I'm speaking to those who may be ostracized because of their faith in Jesus. Relationships have been severed because you no longer do the things that you used to do. You're a new creature in Christ. And you may be wondering, okay, God, why do I feel this pain? If this is you, if you can relate to any of this, then the book of Hebrews would like a moment of your attention. You see, the author in the book of Hebrews is writing primarily to a group of second-generation Christians. And these believers had been discipled by those who had experienced Jesus' earthly ministry firsthand. And when you read the book of Hebrews, you see that they weren't all self-consumed. As a matter of fact, in chapter 6, you see that they're ministering to other Christians who are less fortunate than them. But unfortunately... What happened was false doctrine creeped in. And the raging flames of persecution consumed the church's passion and commitment for Jesus. Because of their faith in Jesus, they were considered by Orthodox Jews to be unclean. And as a result, they were viewed as being worse than the Gentiles. They weren't able to go into the synagogues, let alone the temple. They were, they were cut off from every sacred thing that they had known. And because of this, the author of Hebrews, he writes this book to warn those who may be tempted to reverse their course and go back into traditional, uh, to go back to living under the law. In, in, Dr., in Dr. Warren Weiserby's commentary on the book of Hebrews, he lists five warnings to the believers the first is drifting. The second is doubting. The third is dullness. The fourth is despising. And the fifth is denying. Um, as you can tell, the bulk of the time we're going to spend is discussing drifting. So I'm just going to jump over that for now. And I'm going to go to the second step, which is doubting. 
In the book of Hebrews, in the, in the third chapter, you see that the author is warning the believer about hearing God's word and then hardening their heart through unbelief. And what he does is he uses the Israelites as an example. Many of you are familiar with the story. The children of Israel were being oppressed by Pharaoh. They cry out to God. God hears them. And he uses a man named Moses to deliver the children of Israel. They experience uh, plagues or, or signs that God is with them. The Red Sea is split. But what happened was once Pharaoh and his army were drowned in the sea, things didn't happen quite the way that the children of Israel had envisioned. You see, because his ways weren't like their ways, and because his thoughts weren't like their thoughts, they took a path that wasn't the quickest way to get into the promised land. And there were times where they got a little hungry, and there were times where they were a little parched. And as a result of that, even though they had experienced all these miraculous signs from God, they began to reminisce and look back on what they had in Egypt. They said things like, hey, I remember we had vegetables and we had fruits. And I remember all the good things in Egypt. And they would, they would uh, complain and they were bitter against Moses. And they were like, hey, Moses, why would you bring us out here? Did you bring us out here to die? What's going on? Is God with us or not? And so the author in Hebrews, he's warning them, hey, don't be like that. Each and every one of us should be able to look back over our lives and see God at work. And it should strengthen our resolve. It should strengthen our commitment and our faith so that when we face the next challenge, we know that there's nothing too hard for God. But the children of Israel had short memories and they wanted to go back into Egypt. And as a result, they died wandering, wandering in the wilderness. And I know there are some of you that may not understand uh, what I'm talking about. There's some of you that may not have received Jesus in your heart. And so I would caution you, don't get to the edge. Don't get to the edge of, of, of um, you're going to church, you're learning things, but then you draw back into bondage. There's so much more for you. And so that is the second warning. The third warning in chapters five and six is dullness. And so the author in Hebrews, he's rebuking the church because they have grown spiritually dull. He says, I have so much that I want to share with you. I want to talk about this guy, Melchizedek. I want to share with you how Jesus is a priest under the Melchizedek law and what that means to you, but I can't do that. And so there are a few symptoms to let you know if you're spiritually dull right now. The first one is you're dull towards the word. No sermon, no message is ever good enough. You come to church, but it's, it's, it's out of a sense of obligation. You know, you serve in this particular ministry. You don't want to let people down. It's become tradition. It's something that you do on Saturday evenings, uh, 7.30, hurry up and get here because I have plans. I want to go catch the latest movie. I want to go grab a bite to eat. But you become dull towards hearing the word of God. What's the posture of our heart when we hear God's word? Are we looking for ways to be intentional in which we can apply it? Or, we, or do we just read it because we know, hey, this, this is kind of what I'm supposed to do. I'm a Christian. I know I'm supposed to read God's word. But every, time I re every single time I read it, I fall asleep and I get sleepy. If that's the case, that may be a symptom that you're becoming spiritually dull towards the Word of God. The second symptom that the author gives here to let the church know that they're becoming spiritually dull is he says that you have a baby food diet right here. I remember 
I have a niece uh, named Skylar. She's seven years old. And about three or four years ago, uh, we were all together for Thanksgiving, and there was just this huge spread. And uh, I was heading up for probably my second, maybe third plate. And I saw my niece standing by the food with the saddest look on her face. And so I asked her what was wrong. And her mom told me, she said, she's upset because there's no chicken nuggets. And all the food that was there, and she was upset because there was no chicken nuggets. But that's what we do sometimes. The guy said, hey, the author says, hey, I want to give you guys some meat. I have some, I have some uh, surf and turf. I have whatever your favorite food is. This is what I have for you. But right now, you're not able to handle this. You're only, you can only digest Similac. What is our attitude towards the word? Are we constantly seeking to grow and to push ourselves in the understanding of Scripture? Or have we grown into a place where we're comfortable? Hey, I know enough. I know just enough to get into heaven, and I'm all right with that. I know sometimes I'm challenged when I hear uh, Pastor Mike and Pastor Ben and Pastor Bongo bring forth the word. There are times where they'll begin to quote scriptures, and I used to know that scripture. But what happened? I, I, I lost it. At some point in time, I didn't, uh, I stopped memorizing scriptures like I used to. I stopped placing a, an importance and an emphasis on growing in God's word. And that's a sign that you become spiritually dull. And finally, the third symptom of, of spiritual dullness is the inability to share the word. The author rebuked him, them because he said, hey, at this point in time, you ought to be teachers. He says, I want to talk about Melchizedek. I can't give it to you yet, but if I'm being honest with you guys, you ought to be teaching someone else by now. You see, these were the people that had been discipled, like I said, by people that had experienced Jesus' earthly ministry firsthand. And, and that first generation of Christians, they were faithful in pouring into them. And he said, okay, you've been to enough conferences. You've been in enough small groups. You've been in church long enough. You've been in enough seminars. At this point, you ought to be reaching someone else with the gospel. But they didn't. They were still focused on me, my four, and no more. The fourth step is, is despising. In chapter 10, once you, once you are dull, you don't stay in that position very long. You don't stay in that neutral state. Eventually, you shift over into despising the church and the things of God. And so in chapter 10, he had to encourage them, like around verse 25, he's like, hey, guys, don't forget to come together. Because many of them had stopped coming to church. They stopped fellowshipping with one another due to the persecution. And they started going to bedside Baptists. They looked up and they said, well, you know, I can catch the sermon online. I'm, or I can grab a CD next week. I'm going to get a couple more hours in the bed. And so... It's not just coming to church to sing a couple songs together and hearing a message and leaving. But what the author is saying here is, hey, guys, you've got to assemble together. You've got to do life with one another. This is the place where you get encouraged. This is the place where you get affirmed. This is the place where you're able to exercise your gifts and where people can pray for you and where you can serve the body. And this is what we need. But they had stopped doing that. And then finally in chapter 12, he cautions them about caving in and denying the Lord Jesus Christ just to gain the acceptance of men. 
You know, we all know what it's like to drift. Um, any of you that have ever driven a vehicle before, there are times where you get behind the wheel and you're sleepy. And what happens? You start, you start dozing off and you feel it, but you think you can push through. And so what happens? You, you either uh, wake up by the grace of God right before you're about to hit something, or you may run over those indentations in the road, and that may wake you up. But what do you do once you realize that you've been drifting? You, you may roll down the window. You may turn up the radio. You may pull over and take a quick nap. You do something because you recognize the danger in drifting. Well, it's the same way, brothers and sisters, spiritually. And that's why I wanted to spend the majority of my time talking about drifting, because when you feel the shift occurring, when you feel the posture of your heart beginning to shift toward the things of God, you need to take immediate action because it's only by the grace of God that you're able to recognize that you're starting to drift. And God doesn't want you to wander further and further away. He doesn't want us to get to that place of dullness or despising or denial. So that's why I wanted to focus on this and, and nip the drifting in the bud. But I talked about the book of Hebrews being a book of warning, but it's so much more than that. As a matter of fact, it's a book of exaltation. The majority of the book is spent talking about the superiority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because in exalting Jesus, he's showing the reader that not only is Christ above all, but Christianity is superior to the false doctrines that they have been taught. It's superior to Orthodox Judaism. Christianity is superior over everything. So this brings us to our text. If we could go to the first slide. In verse 1, it says, therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Now, you know, anytime, if you've been in church for a couple minutes, you know, anytime you come across the word therefore, you got to ask yourself, what's the therefore, therefore? You have to say that when you're behind the pulpit. That's, that's just how it goes. <laughs> so he says, therefore. And that will bring us to the previous chapter. In chapter 1, he spends the whole chapter exalting Jesus. As a matter of fact, if Jesus were uh, giving a public speech, chapter 1 would be a great bio. Chapter 1 would be a great introduction because he starts off by saying, you know, long ago God used prophets. And I'm paraphrasing, but he says, now he's spoken to us through his son. And then he goes on to say things like, um, he has made an atonement for our sins, and now he's seated at the right hand of God. He talks about in chapter 1 how Jesus is greater than the angels and that the angels worship him. He talks about how Jesus is the creator of the heavens and the earth. And towards the end of chapter 1, he goes on to talk about how Jesus is going to renovate heaven and earth, and there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. And this whole chapter is talking about the preeminence of Jesus. And then in chapter two, he says, therefore, in light of everything that I've just shared with you about Jesus, you need to pay closer attention to what you've heard. He says, I don't want you to drift from it. A couple years ago, I went on my first cruise, um, got a chance to go to Bermuda with some friends, and I had a blast. And so my one friend who put the trip together, 
he had actually been to Bermuda the year before. And so once I paid for the trip, there were times where it was snowing and the weather was kind of like this weekend where the weather wasn't the best. Or there were times when I had a bad day at work and I would call my boy and I'd be like, yo, Steph, what's going on, man? Tell me a little bit about the boat that we're about to go on. And he would talk about all the amenities on the ships, and he would talk about you could eat until your heart's content, and he would talk about all the activities and everything that you could do. And I would say, well, tell me a little bit about Bermuda. And then he would talk about the beach that we were about to go to that had pink sand and the beautiful water. And there was something interesting that was happening. Uh, When he talked about the trip, there was an anticipation building up. There was a joy. There was an excitement that I had. And it didn't matter how bad my day was going. It didn't matter the obstacles that I was facing. Just the thought of where I would be in a few months gave me an unspeakable joy. And this is what the author is saying to them. You ought to have this joy. You ought to go to the people that discipled you and poured into you and say, well, well, tell me about that parable that Jesus said again about the seed. What what do you think he meant by that? Or tell me about that miracle when Jesus raised that guy Lazarus from the dead. He really just said, come forth, and he came forth. He's telling them, pay earnest heed to everything that you've heard. But so many times, the cares of this world just take its toll on us. And we don't even think about heaven much. Yeah, we mentally assent to the reality that there's a heaven. We know that when we die and we've placed our faith and our trust in Jesus, that's where we'll be. But we don't long for that. We don't desire that. We don't even think about it much. As a matter of fact, we're so blessed here in America that many times we just We'll take Jesus and just a little bit more money and we'll be okay. Jesus and just a little better family situation and relationship, and that's cool. Who needs heaven? Just give me Jesus and health and I'll settle for that. But he's saying pay earnest heed to the gospel. I remember uh, about a year and a half ago when I first came to the church, well, about two years ago, and, and Pastor Mike got up here. And he was like, yeah, you know, the next series we're going to do is uh, in the book of Luke. And it's going to be about a year, year and a half. And I was like, oh, so this is what we do here. We just we just stay in the book for a year or two. (laughs) And I remember thinking, man, I'm going to be like 70 by the time we get to the book of James. But the reason why. (laughs) But that's a beautiful book because it examines the life of Jesus. And it's constantly putting us in remembrance of how Jesus lived and what he taught. Because if we don't do those things, we are going to drift away. Let's look at verse 2. It says, "For For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. So angels were highly regarded by the Jews. And and when you read the scriptures, you see all throughout the scripture that God would use the angels to deliver 
uh, very important messages. In Deuteronomy 33, you see that the angels assisted in giving the law. Um, in Luke chapter 4, we see that Gabriel came up to Zechariah with some uh, beautiful news that Elizabeth would give birth to a child, and he talked about John the Baptist. The same angel Gabriel also went to Mary and told her that she would give birth. We see angels uh, appearing to the shepherds at night, announcing the birth of Jesus. And so angels were very respected by the Jews. And he says, since the message by angels proved to be reliable, and he goes on to say, every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. In other words, whenever someone didn't heed the angel's words, there were consequences that came with that. Lot's wife comes to mind. You remember the story in Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, he told them, leave the city and don't look back. And she looked back and became a pillar of salt. Even Zechariah, he didn't believe what Gabriel had to say. And as a result, he was unable to speak. So there were consequences for not following what the angels had to say. Let's go to the next verse. It says, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation. You see, like I said, in chapter 1, he talks about just how much more superior Jesus is over the angels. And Jesus himself, he rebuked the scribes and he rebuked the Pharisees when they were cavalier towards his teaching. I remember in Matthew chapter 12, um, he talked about that the people of Nineveh would rise up in judgment. And condemn them because they repented at the words of a Jonah, but a greater than Jonah is here. And he talked about the queen of Sheba, how she came and traveled to hear the words of Solomon. But he said a greater than Solomon is here. In other words, Jesus is saying, I'm here. I'm greater than these prophets. And you're not listening to my word. And so the author here, he's saying, if we knew that there were consequences for disobeying the angels and not taking their words seriously, how much more? Will there be consequences for disobeying the words of Jesus? Um, in verse 3, it also says, it was declared at first by the Lord. In other words, the salvation was declared at first by the Lord. He declared salvation all throughout his earthly ministry. But one of my favorite examples of that is in John chapter 6. There's so much happening within that one chapter. He starts off by uh, he's talking and he has a crowd following him. And in my mind, I just I envision Tiger Woods, you know, playing golf. When he was at the peak of his golf career, there would be this huge crowd following him everywhere he went. And so Jesus is walking and there's this crowd following him and he recognizes it's getting late and he doesn't want to send them on their way hungry. So what does he do? He, he goes to Philip and he asks them, hey, where are we going to get food for everyone to eat? But it says he knew what he was going to already do. And so he made the multitude sit down. The scripture says there were 5,000 men. I don't know how many women and children there were, but there was a young boy with five barley loaves and two fish. And so he made everyone sit down. He broke the bread. He gave thanks to the Father, and he began to distribute. And there were leftovers. And as everybody was eating their fish fillets, the Bible says that they started talking among themselves and they said, hey, you know what? Uh, uh, Moses talked about a prophet that was going to be coming. I think he's the prophet. It's got to be him. And so it says in John chapter 6 that they wanted to take him by force and make him a king. And when Jesus perceived that, 
he withdrew himself. And so then later on in the same chapter, he sends his disciples on a boat. He walks out. He meets them later about three or four miles walking out onto the water. They eventually get to the other side. And the same crowd that ate their fish dinner, they were pursuing Jesus. They were looking for him. And so eventually they catch up with him and they're like, hey, uh, when did you and your disciples get here? And what does Jesus say to them? He says, hey, you're looking for me not because of the miracle that you experienced, but because of the bread that you ate. And he tells them, don't be concerned with earthly bread, but you need to be concerned with the bread that came from heaven. And when he says that to them, they try to get super spiritual and they say, well, you know, Jesus, uh, uh, Moses gave the children of Israel bread from heaven and they ate this manna. So why don't you hook us up with another meal? And he says, no, 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 Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven, but the Father has given you the bread from heaven now. And look at what he says in 635. He says in John 635, he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me will not thirst. And my question, brothers and sisters, is what is it that we're hungering for? Because if we're not hungering for Jesus, if we don't wake up every day, Dependent upon his mercy and his grace, we will begin to drift because our appetite is going to go somewhere. What are we hungering for? Is it earthly comfort? Is it money? What do you hunger for? You see, these people, even though they experienced the miracle of Jesus, they just wanted their bellies full. They didn't have time for the whole salvation thing and eating of his flesh and drinking his blood. They didn't want to hear any of that. They was like, just give me another fish dinner. Let's look at the next slide, please. It says, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. And so what this is saying is, when you look at verses 3 and verses 4, it's saying, first, the Lord declared salvation, uh, the apostles declared the salvation, and God also gave them the ability to perform miracles, to validate what they were saying. And he gave, the Holy Spirit gave gifts to different people just to, ver- um, just to prove that the message was true. And even though it's great To see a miracle, it's great to be on the receiving end of a miracle. That's exciting. You know what, brothers and sisters? We have something now. We have a greater witness than even a miracle, and that's the Word of God. Turning your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1. This is one of my favorite passages in the Bible. And Peter says, well, in verses 17 and 18, he's talking about, hey, I don't want you guys to think that we were duped. We didn't follow any fables. We weren't tricked by anyone. But Peter is talking about we experienced a miracle firsthand. We went to the Mount of Transfiguration and we saw Jesus transform. And we saw uh, Moses and Elijah appear on the Mount. And 
we audibly heard the voice of the Father say, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. So we're not just following something that we've heard from people or we didn't make this up, but we actually experienced these things. But then look what Peter goes on to say. He says, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart, knowing this of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Next slide, please. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So what Peter is saying in these verses was that even though we experienced what we experienced on the Mount of Transfiguration, we have something more reliable than that miracle, and that is the Word. The prophetic word concerning Jesus is, is even more reliable than that. You see, we live in a time, brothers and sisters, where even Jesus during his earthly ministry, he, he talked about in the last days how people would be deceived and there would be lying signs and lying wonders. And even today, you have false prophets who may be able to perform some sort of a miracle. So a sign in and of itself doesn't prove anything. But this word, this is your anchor. This is what's going to keep you from drifting. This is what you can rely on because it's impossible for God to lie. So in closing, um, you know, there, there's, there's a lot of practical things that we can do to avoid drifting. One is we have to control our schedules and we can't allow our schedules to control us. There are a lot of people in the body of Christ struggling just because you're too busy. Too busy for quality time with God. Be intentional about your prayer life. Set times in the day where you're going to read. And don't allow anyone or anything to get in those appointed times that you've made with God. Another thing that we can do to avoid drifting is have transparent relationships have those brothers and sisters that you can call on and just share your heart with. I know there are times where um, <laughs> I'm, Pastor Ben and I were supposed to get together once a month, but I don't get with them once a month. Sometimes I just give them a month to relax because I just spill my guts when we get together and I'm sharing different things that I'm struggling with. But him and Elder Mike, and there are so many people that I can call on when I'm going through and they're, they're loving and they're praying and they're encouraging me and they're reminding me of God's word and what Jesus has to say. And you need men and women like that in your life that can see you drifting and that can point it out and can hold you accountable in prayer. But remember, this is your anchor. And I'm not preaching this from a place of, um, you know, I've conquered this thing. This is something that I wrestle with every day. But I thank God for his grace. And like I said, we're sealed. We've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. And nothing or no one can pluck us from the Father's hand. So be encouraged and be intentional in your walk with the Lord. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for your love. I thank you for your mercy. I thank you for your understanding, Lord God. You know that there are times when we just blow it, Lord God. 
There are times where we get distracted and we get sidetracked. But you still love us, Lord God. And you've given us your word. It's, it is our compass. And Holy Spirit, I'm praying, Lord, that, that something was said today that would be an encouragement, Lord. I'm praying that we would be more intentional in our prayer life. That we would be more intentional in spending time with the word, Lord God. Wean us off of those things that are distracting us and taking us away from what we truly need, Lord God. I thank you for the, the talents and the abilities that you have placed in this church, Lord God. I thank you for the calling that you have on everyone's life, Lord God. And I pray that they would not rest, that they would not be content until they're everything that you've created them to be, Lord God. Help us to press toward the mark and not to settle for anything less. Give us discernment. Give us wisdom on how to live each and every day in a way that will glorify and honor you, Lord God. Lord, we just want to please you. We know that you are soon to return, Lord God, and we want to live a life that is worthy of, of what you've done for us, Lord God. I thank you. I pray that you would give everyone traveling mercies. For in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Would you stand and sing with us?